Welcome to the party, pals. I'm Phil Gawthorne, action movie screenwriter. And I'm Liam Billingham, movie podcaster. And together we host Die Hard on a Blank, a podcast from Sugar23 that explores the influence of Die Hard on action cinema. In each episode, we'll talk about one major action movie that was released after Die Hard. Now, some of these movies take place on a bus. On a boat. Or even a roadhouse. Uh, sure. The point is, these are action movies that couldn't exist without Die Hard, and its DNA is everywhere. Die Hard on a Blank is a celebration of action movies and a deep dive into the ways that Die Hard shaped the action genre. So if you're a casual fan or an action movie Die Hard. Ooh, very nice. Then Die Hard on a Blank is for you. Yes, you personally. Our first two episodes, which are all about the original 1988 masterpiece Die Hard, drop December 21st, because Die Hard is a Christmas movie, wherever you get your podcasts. Phil, do the line. Now we have a podcast. (laughs) Ho, ho, ho. I'm Liam Billingham. I'm George Fragopoulos. And I'm Stuart Galbraith. <gasps> and and this is... Oeuvre Busters. Yay! Yay! Stuart, how are you doing in Japan? How are things going? Oh, it's great. I love it. I, I moved here in uh, permanently in 2003, and uh, no regrets, and... Yeah, um, I moved. I, I originally lived in the city of Kyoto, and then about four years ago, I bought a two hundred year old what's called a, a minka, which is a type of uh, traditional architecture style uh, farmhouse in the mountains, and uh, I love it. I'm I'm living kind of like a hermit, so <laughs> this is rare. Nice. A rare. Uh, chance to talk with the outside world <laughs> well i can say that like hermit living in 2020 actually sounds pretty um, pretty good yeah, considering yeah. every time i go to a grocery store now i'm like <laughs> i'm just nervous all the time um so well let's just jump right in um if you if you don't if you'll indulge me i would love to read your bio oh sure that sure. would be a good start to go before we jump in um this episode of course is on drunken angel and who better than Stuart galbraith to talk to us about this film and the films of akira kurosawa Stuart Galbraith is a Kyoto-based historian, writer, and publisher editor of World Cinema Paradise. He is the author of seven books, including The Emperor and the Wolf, the joint biography of Akira Kurosawa and Toshiro Mifune, hailed by Martin Scorsese as a must-read. Wow. Within the home video field, Galbraith has written essays for Criterion's three-disc Seven Samurai DVD and Blu-ray, Optimans Rashomon, BCI Eclipses The Quiet Duel, and Subcultures The Long Good Friday. In 2015, Galbraith recorded an audio commentary and wrote and produced a new short documentary, Rashomon at 65, for the British Film Institute's Blu-ray of Kurosawa's 1950 classic. Concurrently, he served as a consultant on Oscar-winning director Stephen Okazaki's documentary feature, Mifune, The Last Samurai. Holding a master's degree from the University of Southern California's prestigious School of Cinema Television, Galbraith worked as an archivist and researcher at both Warner Brothers and MGM. At Warner Brothers, Galbraith implemented preservation projects and procedures at both its USC Warner Brothers archives and the Warner Brothers Corporate Image archives. At MGM, Galbraith worked as a film detective, tracking down the original camera negatives to more than three dozen lost films. Since 2003, he has lived in Kyoto, Japan with his wife, Yukio, and his daughter, Sadie. And he's currently at work on a new act of preservation, which I hope he'll tell us about. I watched your, your short documentary uh, today, oh, and I thought great. it was really cool. Welcome to the show. No, thank you for having us. Yes, yeah, Sue, thank you again no, for joining us. Yeah, it's really exciting. Um, so I didn't. I found out about your book actually through another podcast called The Big Picture. Uh, back in, I think it was March or April, they did an episode about 100 years of Toshiro Mifune, which mm. was a big inspiration on why we decided to do this. And your book was sort of the the recommended read on the subject. And mm. I didn't know. I I it's unless you know about it, it's it feels like it's hard to track down. I think it is. Yeah. These <laughs> books. Are, yeah. It's a hard book to track down, unfortunately, because it's, I'm reading it now and I'm, it's, it's, it's great. It's such a great 
uh, enjoyable, accessible read. So I was wondering, before we jump into um, talking about Drunken Angel, do you want to tell us a little bit about what compelled you to write such like what I would describe as kind it's such an epic and expansive take on the lives of these two incredible artists. Do you want to talk a little bit about why you wrote it right, why you decided to write about it and a little bit about your personal history with Akira Kurosawa and Toshiro Mifune? Well, uh, for me, I mean, I'd always been an admirer of Kurosawa's films and Mifune's films. And, uh, back in the days when I was still living in Los Angeles, uh, one morning I was woken up about 6.30 by the uh, phone ringing and I answered the phone and it was somebody from a um, news agency calling to get a quote from me uh, about the death of Akira Kurosawa. So this was the first I had heard of it and I kind of fumbled through as best I could a quote uh, about his legacy and all that and went back to bed and I couldn't get back to sleep because... Uh, Mainly, I was sad that there were going to be no more Kurosawa movies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was very depressed. And uh, uh, lying there, I kept thinking that uh, it's really a shame that um, no one has written a, a complete biography of Kurosawa. Uh, up to that point, uh, really, uh, the only sources of information were uh, Donald Ritchie's book, The Films of Akira Kurosawa, which is a fantastic book, but it's mostly readings of the movies. And, um, and then there was uh, Kurosawa's memoirs, something like an autobiography, which is also wonderful, but it only goes up to 1950 to the production of Rashomon and uh, stops there. So you don't get anything about Seven Samurai or Yojimbo or anything else. So... Um, uh, I basically thought, well, if, if nobody else is going to do it, I, I could probably manage to put something together. And then as I was thinking about how to uh, put together a, a book proposal to send out to, to agents and then try to find an agent, um, the more I realized that any book, any biography of Kurosawa, about a third of it is going to end up being about Mifune anyway. So why not do a joint biography? It made a lot of sense. And particularly because even less was known about Mifune at that, at that point. Um, even now, 20 years later, uh, many of his films are not available even in Japan. Hmm. So, Yeah, it's been interesting to... We've been, I've been doing a little bit of like, you know, study as we've prepared for this season. And, and I've always thought of part of the reason I think we ended up doing the season we did is I've, I've always thought of their relationship as being so important, obviously, to both of their works that it, it was always hard to separate the two, which mm -hmm. is why we didn't want to do a season on just Kurosawa. We wanted to, and also to do a season on Kurosawa would take us years because there's so many films. Right. So we felt as though it was a good idea to combine everything and, or, or to find a way to kind of reduce it down to, the most sort of like best distillation of the work that both of them did, because I, I find it interesting that when you read about their lives, Kurosawa's the po Kurosawa's post Mifune output does not hold a candle until later on to his, his Mifune kind of output. It's interesting to think about his life and stuff like that. Mm, I mean, that's the thing. They're so, they're so intertwined. And I think that was, um, it became a problem for them over time because it was hard to think of, Kurosawa making a great film without Mifune and vice versa. And uh, I think both of them did uh, great work independent of one another. Uh, but it was something that kind of followed them and, and uh, I think in later years annoyed them a little bit that constantly being asked, when are you, when are you guys going to work together yeah. again? Uh, so um, obviously we're talking about Drunken Angel today, but is there a prototypical, let's say, collaboration? Or is there a film in particular that you feel stands out as paradigmatic in terms of their collaborative efforts? Uh, well, that's hard to say because, uh, you know, to me, every film is its own animal. And um, one is just not like any of the others. Um I think it's interesting over time, my, my sort of favorite Kurosawa movie keeps shifting around. And in recent years, I've been drawn more and more to High and Low, hmm. which 
a lot of people regard as, oh, this is a really great crime thriller, but I think it it is um, much more profound than that. I think it's it, it's much deeper than that on, on so many levels. And um, I think the collaborative uh, process of Mifune and, and Kurosawa together is in a way at its most interesting, partially because um, Mifune is playing a character very much like himself uh, because Mifune uh, was really a working class guy who became this you know, fabulously wealthy person and carrying a lot of responsibility. And that's basically the character in the movie. And then um, the range of acting uh, that we see in Mifune's performance in that film, where there's so much uh, pent up, suppressed emotion going on, and you can just see it boiling up in his performance throughout the movie. Um, so I suppose in, in some ways, if you're trying to recommend a Kurosawa Mifune film to somebody who's never seen one, mm -hmm. Uh, something like Seven Samurai or Rashomon are, are obvious examples, but I might recommend High and Low. I think that's uh, very accessible to people who maybe don't want to plunge in so completely <laughs> into Japanese cinema and history and culture and everything. Um, and, and its themes are very universal, as as are almost all of Kurosawa's films. So, Yeah, High and Low is actually probably my favorite Kurosawa Mifune movie maybe my favorite one of my favorite movies of all time and it was actually the one that and I can't wait till we talk about it it sort of crystallized the divert the range of what those two guys did together because I'd seen all the samurai films and thought they were great and then someone said oh you have to watch the sort of urban crime films mm. and I watched that in Stray Dog in the same day mm. and my jaw was on the floor about how great those two films are i love them and it's also like, interesting people. now i mean in a way so much of the movie is about uh this this stark story of income inequality mm. which everybody is talking about now and kurosawa was you know addressing that in high and low more than 50 years ago mm -hmm. so yeah, it's a, it seems to me to also just be a sort of and i've only discovering discovered a lot of these like post-war japan films that he made uh, i discovered the samurai films in like my teenage years and then in my 20s started watching the sort of contemporary films and i was blown away by the depictions of post-war japan which mm. you know don't in the west you definitely don't see uh quite so unvarnished or it's it's not as it's not the first like you said it's not the first films you go to necessarily everyone goes to seven samurai or rashomon or, or those films but it was kind of mind-blowing to see the complexities of the way he depicted um, Japan in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Mm. And with that, let's talk a little bit about Drunken Angel. Let's George, do, do you want to give us a quick plot summary of Drunken As Angel? As usual, Liam, I would love to give you a quick plot summary of Drunken Thank Angel. You. Please go so ahead. So Drunken Angel tells the story of Sonata, an alcoholic doctor, and his relationship with Matsunaga, a low-level Yakuza member. Sonata, after taking care of a gunshot wound that Matsunaga is suffering from, also diagnoses him with tuberculosis. Um, the re relationship really kind of takes off from there. It's tumultuous, to say the least, but they develop a kind of, I guess, like mutual respect, but also kind of mutual disdain for one another um, in the sense that they both kind of like need one another and their lives become kind of intricately related um, with uh, one another. So eventually Matsunaga's boss, Okada, is, is let loose out of prison and he attempts to take back his gang, which places him in opposition with Matsunaga, um, especially when, when Okada threatens the life of Sonata, the doctor. Uh, eventually there's a confrontation between Matsunaga and Okada, and this leads to the death of Matsunaga and with Okada eventually going back to prison. And the film really ends on this kind of semi-hopeful note with Sonata the Doctor being reconnected with a young patient of his who is also diagnosed with tuberculosis, but who is now um, kind of healed. Um, and yeah, and it kind of ends on this, as I already said, this hopeful note, which feels kind of... I mean, anyway, obviously we could talk about the ending um, in some detail, but it feels both kind of like almost like tacked on, but maybe something that Kurosawa, I wonder if like Kurosawa himself like wanted it to be there or if it was something that the studio kind of insisted um, would be uh, amended on the film. 
Um, but yeah, that's about it. And, and the film is kind of like a really just kind of like intense, interesting noir uh, drama. It's very kind of intimate and tense. And yeah, it's a great fucking film. Cool. It was the first time I've seen it and I was just completely blown away by it. It's it's yeah, it's pretty incredible. It was directed by Akira Kurosawa, written by Hideo Oguni, produced by Sho- Sojiro Motoki. The directors of photography were Takio Ito and Susumu Urashima. And the cast uh, is the great Takashi Shimura as Dr. Sanada, Toshiro Mifuni as Matsunaga, Raisaburo Yamamoto as Okada, Michio Kogori as Nane, Chiako Nakakakita as Nurse Mio, and other amazing cast members. This is the first film that Kurosawa and Mifune made together. Kurosawa had written and worked on Snow Trail, which we talked about on our last episode. And uh, the film was shot on the set from a previous Toho production, which I thought was really interesting. And also, as I understand it, it would be Kurosawa's last film for Toho for quite some time. He made five or six films after not for Toho. Stuart, I think you mentioned that you revisited this film prior to us recording this. What? How did it feel going back to it after what I imagine had been some time? Yeah, it was interesting because it was. I sort of initially regarded it as as homework for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I was. Over. I got to see it because I hadn't seen it. I think since about two thousand four or so, when the Criterion DVD was released. And uh, but then I I put it on somewhat begrudgingly and and i was just immediately uh i loved it i had a great time watching it again i had forgotten uh how compelling it is uh so that was that was the first thing uh the other thing that really struck me is that um recently i rewatched uh via kino's recent blu-ray release um uh port of shadows the famous uh, French poetic realist film from the 30s and seeing it that so close to watching Drunken Angel again I was really struck at how uh, much Drunken Angel has the style and feel and atmosphere of something like Port of Shadows and uh, French poetic realism as opposed to say a semi-documentary touch which is you have a little bit more in something like Stray Dog. Yeah, I was blown away by how... I, I'd, I'd seen this film once years ago. Um, I couldn't remember. It, it didn't stick out to me in the way that, let's say, a Stray Dog or a High and Low had years ago, but I was blown away at how contemporary it still feels. Mm. It feels like it could have been made... It's incredibly poetic, as you said. It 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 The cynicism uh, mixed with the kind of hope that the that um sonata has feels inc- it everything feels colored by what's going on right now in the world with with us all being in quarantine and things like that and so the way that it it felt very immediate to me in the way that it it managed to be both cynical and incredibly hopeful yet mm. despairing at the same time and i i just i found the use of production design and camera movements and the kind of sparseness of the setting uh, especially in the scenes with the guitar player to be so theatrical and poetic, but never once was I lost or never once was I less than convinced that what I was watching uh, was like a really powerful cinematic. It's a great example of like Kurosawa's ability to do a lot with little, with ver- with what feels like only a little. And I was yeah. very impressed by that. George? Uh, yeah, no, again, I was just totally blown away. It's funny rewatching it. There were two... Um, touch points that like resonated to me. I was like, oh, this is really... So the first connection that I made, which might sound kind of weird, was but um, thinking a lot about Tarkovsky in relationship to this film and Mm. thinking about like the ways in which like Kurosawa does a great job of poetically using the environment to suggest a certain kind of rottenness to this um, milieu or the society or certain kind of like degradation. So like the scenes where like the kids are playing in like the polluted water and Sonata is basically telling them like, what the hell are you doing? Like get out of there. And that there's again, this kind of like sense of like environmental degradation of there's something like, you know, like rotten in the air, rotten in the environment, which I think is kind of really powerful. And obviously we could talk about it too in relationship to perhaps like post-war Japan or some sort of kind of like anxiety, obviously about like post-war living. Um, But also the eeriness of that, 
guitar theme that you hear often mm. in the first like 45 minutes uh, made me also think about the way in which like Wong Kar Wai uses certain theme, like music, like over and over and over, like obsessively. And it becomes this kind of just like really kind of powerful oral motif. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I was just kind of entirely like gripped by this film. And yes, there's a certain kind of, as you said, like it's modern. Um, and I was just thinking about it modern in the sense of like how well paced it is, how well constructed it is, how tightly wound up it is that there's like no, it's, it's poetic. Yeah. It's very austere. It's very lyrical. It just feels like such a just well-crafted film from like beginning to the yeah, end. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Stuart, as someone that's seen all these films and like written about them extensively, one thing that we're trying to do uh, in looking at these films um, with this season is to, is to really spend some time thinking about some of the thematic similarities or uh, ideas that, exist between the films and and i was wondering do you have thoughts on kind of what some of the thematic connections this film holds with some of the later films or in general yeah i mean uh kurosawa liked to say that this was really his his first movie that he was able to make precisely the way he wanted and uh uh just to briefly go back to the stuff that had come before, I think if you look at all of Kurosawa's movies prior to Drunken Angel, um, the, you know, even the, the weakest ones have interesting moments. And for the most part, they're really good movies, but they're movies that probably could have ma been made by any really good Japanese director. Uh, whereas when you get to Drunken Angel, you have a film that, uh, is so innovative and so unlike anything that was being made at the time. Uh, it, it really is. I was surprised at how much it jumps jumps out <laughs> at me when I was watching it. Watching it, um, I think that you can certainly draw connections from Drunken Angel to some of the later films. I think. Um, I mean, very shortly after this, the next year, in fact, um, uh, Kurosawa uh, did another film in which kind of things got switched around and Mifune played the doctor. Uh, and uh, of course, I think you can also draw parallels to uh, Redbeard uh, in which you have a character in which Mifune plays a character who is uh, a doctor who is determined to uh, fight disease and cure illness with the same kind of um, almost, you know, militant uh, approach that Takashi Shimura's character has in Drunken Angel. Um, so there's, I mean, there's all kinds of connections you can make. Um, I, I tend to look at these films as I, I don't think that there there is a uh, conscious effort on Kurosawa to draw themes, you know, connect one film to another, that kind of thing. But you can certainly see similarities and draw connections from one to another. It feels like to me the the the, the greatest unifier uh, is the style. It's it's like a very he's a very recognizable filmmaker and mm. even in terms of how he shoots things and does things I think that that's a huge connection point. Um, yeah, I, I think the biggest takeaway that I feel we we see from film to film and this was obviously true. The last film we looked at besides well we looked at Snow Trail and we looked mm -hmm. at uh, Sanchiro Sugata is the connection between a the passage of time, especially as you see the relationship and tensions between people of older generations and younger ones. Mm -hmm. I do feel like that's a, that's a connection point in all these films and certainly true in, in stray dog. And it's interesting how in this film, Takashi Shimura, it's such a powerful performance because, I, and we can, I'd love to chat about this. Who is the drunken angel of the film? Because at least to me, the, the clear drunken angel of the film is Takashi Shimura because he's, this kind of angry, cynical, doesn't have faith in people, but but has faith in the idea of people kind of person more than anyone else. And and I I think that the the power to me is is in his constant decision to show up for people every day. It's almost a profound take on 
being a doctor or being yeah, of service yeah. to well, people also, and how they exist. He also calls himself an angel at some point, too. He's, yeah. 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 <laughs> Which is, I mean, the irony, obviously, is that, like, yeah, he might not be the titular drunken angel. Well, I think he's, I think he's definitely the drunken angel of the title. And I think that, uh, you know, the film was originally conceived as being primarily about that character and that Mifune's character was originally going to be just, you know, one of many patients and and stories that uh intertwine with this doctor's life and treatment of different people and uh um kurosawa was so impressed with mifune that he kept building up the part and it got to the point where i think uh kurosawa is quoted at some point as as saying that the film even kind of got a little bit out of control because mifune so overwhelmed the film with his performance, it tends to overshadow uh, Shimura, who is in in many ways equally brilliant, and uh, who who really is the main character. I think that uh, Mifune's character, as as powerful as it is, uh, it doesn't have as much depth as Mifune's characters in later Kurosawa films would have. I mean, he's basically this self-destructive, very minor criminal uh, who's dying and is in denial about it. And um, uh, whereas Shimura's character is really fascinating because he's such a curmudgeon and, and barking at people and uh, you know sneaking his sips of medicinal alcohol and, and all that. And he, you know, it's, it's interesting because it's a very unsentimental movie. And yet uh, I found myself very moved by the, the final scenes in the film, both the, the, de- the death of Mifune's character, but also the, the final scenes where, um, you know, he encounters the young uh, high school student who has recovered from TB and, and, uh, and also this, the wonderful scene with um, uh, Noriko uh, Sengoku, who plays the the kind of uh, uh, bar girl yeah. with uh, feelings for his character and, and ends up having to take his ashes back to her home in the country. Yeah, it's so interesting to think about the Mifune performance and what it means because he's He's obviously just coming off of Snow Trail, which is an interesting film, but quite not quite as expressive. But to me, this is the first film. It's hard to say, but one of the things that makes this film work so well and I think makes it feel relevant is that Mufune's character is cool. Mm. Like the costume, the outfit, the style, yeah. all of those things make him so cool to look at. And of course, like he's a Yakuza he doesn't. What he's doing is terrible, but it it feels like a, a a kind of contemporary film in that we spend our time being like this guy's doing terrible things and destroying his life, but he's cool. Yeah, he lives yeah. a cool well, yeah. kind of existence. There's moral ambiguity to it, right? Yeah, yeah definitely. I, and I think you know, I just read that book Tokyo Vice, which is about yakuza and 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 kind of the role they play in the society there and was kind of shocked by and the book you know tends to focus on is more contemporary but kind of deals with the yakuza and daily life and stuff and i thought this was interesting it's interesting that it seems like this film started to be a sort of expose of yakuza and then went in a really really different direction mm-hmm. where we end up sympathizing in a way with this like young yakuza which i thought was yeah fascinating. yeah well uh, well kind of on a related note you know uh, it's interesting because at that time the occupation was forces was imposing very tight restrictions on what kind of movies could be made. And, um, while I was watching it again, I I kept thinking, you know, how did this movie get made? And then it, it, it became very clear, which is the film is, as kind of this side plot, it's a condemnation of Yakuza feudalism and uh, uh, Shimura's character condemning, you know, the sort of the hypocrisy of supposed Yakuza loyalty and all the Mm -hmm. traditions and everything. And that was exactly what the occupation forces wanted. They wanted films that were, um, 
uh, expressed anti-feudalistic themes and uh, sort of anti-crime, uh, crime doesn't pay type stories. And so I think it actually probably the 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 censors, the American censors were very pleased with this film. So I don't think it probably it probably didn't have any problems at all passing. That's really interesting. I never I never had thought about that before because there's it, it seems like it's yeah, it's kind of a you know, when you read a little bit about Kurosawa, there's the idea of him being a pro-Western filmmaker and that being um, controversial in Japan and, and uh, sort of elements like that. You mentioned that, you know, the, the occupation, occupying forces were, they kind of had control over, or there was censorship around the kind of films that could be made. Is Do you feel like this film is a good example based on your research of what life was like in Japan after the war? Oh, I think... Um... Not only Drunken Angel, but also uh, Kurosawa's One Wonderful Sunday and Stray Dog all capture that uh, early post-war life uh, very accurately uh, in all kinds of ways. And I think the look of it and everything is, is pretty much dead on. Hmm. Uh, and of course, Stray Dog, a lot of, a lot of the footage in that film was... Um, you know, actual footage of the the black market and mm. and uh, real streets. It wasn't a set, so it was stuff shot with uh, you know hidden cameras and that sort of thing. Kind of more like a wheeling, uh, gun and run kind of documentary right. situation. You mentioned in your book that like you draw a connection between Mufune and Drunken Angel and Marlon Brando mm. in Streetcar Named Desire. Is Mufune kind of like? Japan's Marlon Brando, for lack of a better word? Well, I don't think uh, Japanese audiences had seen a performance like that before in, in, a, in a Japanese film. And um, I think that one of the things about Mifune, and you see this in, certainly again in Rashomon, and you see it in Seven Samurai, he, he didn't hold back. He, his relationship with Kurosawa was such that he trusted Kurosawa completely and Kurosawa gave Mifune the freedom to just do it the way he felt a particular scene should be done. Mm -hmm. And, um, so there's a kind of, um, exposed nerve aspect to Mifune's mm -hmm. performances, uh, in, in these films. And, um, you know, I, I, you think of, um, Japanese uh, costume pictures up to that point and where it's very stylized and the heroes are very, you know, immaculately dressed in their hair and everything. And uh, the sword play is so, so stylized and uh, almost like, you know, ballet. I mean, that's, again, mm -hmm. that's something that Kurosawa tore down in Rashomon in the scenes, in the fight scenes in, in that film. So I think that, um, I think audiences were Japanese audiences were really shocked by his performance because it was so sort of new and they hadn't seen anything like it before. Yeah. Coming back to some of these themes that we talked about a little bit in the, and George made a nice little list here. George, do you want to talk about some of the other thematic stuff that you thought was interesting in the film? Yeah. Well, I mean, so going back to this question though, about like, let's say um, the degree to which the film is a critique. And I, I think it very much is like a critique of, this character's association with like the Japanese like underworld or with um, crime. I think what's really fascinating to me also is that there is this kind of also tension between, as I put it, that there's a certain kind of sense that these ideological structures that these two men are attached to don't supply them with some sort of kind of uh, meaning in the world. So that Mifune obviously kind of like runs up against, let's say, the limits of this kind of criminal underworld, again, this criminal organization that he's within, and it leads him to, well, it leads to his death, right? And he kind of obviously has this sickness, which can, in sort of many respects, I think also be seen as a kind of like spiritual sickness. But also the doctor, Sonata, is dealing with alcoholism, and that his, let's say, his, the good that he does in the world as a doctor um, does not allow him to cure himself basically of his own kind of sickness or of his own kind of disease. So I was just kind of also really interested in what the film was attempting to say in these much larger, let's say um, existential sort of ways 
um, regarding, let's say, uh, making meaning in the world or how it is that we find um, ourselves uh, living in relations with other people. So, I mean, I think that's like one of the things that I was just kind of really interested in. And again, I think like going back to what I said earlier, the way in which uh, Kurosawa does a great job of using the environment, the natural world around these individuals to, again, illustrate that there's something uh, rotten in the world and that this kind of rottenness also exists within these damaged men, which I I think I found really, really fascinating. Well, I think uh, one of the things that you refer to is, and, and this is something, this is a theme that Kurosawa comes back to again and again, is, is this search for uh, validation in one's life. And, and certainly uh, his film Ikiru, I mean, the whole movie is about mm-hmm. that, that search. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, here you have, um, as, you, as you also say, this, this pitiful environment with this horrible, toxic uh, swamp in the middle of the neighborhood and um, and the uh, Shimura's doctor working in very kind of crude uh, conditions and it, 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 it's implied that his character is having to sort of beg, borrow, and steal uh, supplies, medical supplies from a much wealthier colleague and um, but yeah, I'm, I'm sort of blanking out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I've got several different thoughts yeah. going at the same time. No, I think the, the, the connection to Ikaru and the kind of this, again, this quest for meaning in one's life or just kind of validation, I think is kind of what, um, yeah, I was just kind of getting at. Like, so that Kurosawa obviously is, I mean, that he's in, in the most not pretentious sort of way, a very profound filmmaker that he's very much mm-hmm. also interested in the the mundane, the banal, the everyday, and making films that are very much attached to an actual kind of realist uh, approach to filmmaking, but also that there are these much larger, like say, profound philosophical questions that resonate, at least for me, through so many of his films. I think a big question that I have that I feel like is an interesting point of discussion and that relates to this is: Do you guys feel as though these? or these films are that we've seen are explicitly political or do they feel more spiritual in, in what they explore? Because to me, it's like, I've never thought of Kurosawa's films as political, but now looking at them through a, the lens that I am now, I'm more interested in that. So I guess I'm wondering what you, what you guys think about the, the political nature of the films. Well, I think some of Kurosawa's films are definitely political, but I, I don't think this one really is at all. I think it's basically uh, a character study or two characters in this case. And um, it's interesting because there, I know that um, somewhere on the Criterion DVD, uh, there's uh, an essay talking about the film being very, suggesting that the film is very political and anti-Western because of the way, uh, you know, Matsunaga dresses and because of the Western influence nightclubs and that kind of thing. I don't see that at all. I just see that as a reflection of what early post-war Japan was really like at that time and how uh, Yakuza uh, hoods of his, his level dressed and how nightclubs in, in Japan really were at that time. And this is stuff that you can see in historical photos and, in other Japanese movies of the period, it wasn't. Um, I, I don't think it's really a political film at all. Is there a film that you would point out as being explicitly political? Uh, well, I think you can look at something like uh, *The Bad Sleep Well*, for instance. Um, I think is a very dark and and very realistic and prescient film at uh, the relationship between big business in Japan and the Japanese government for instance. And I, and I think in a sort of backhanded way, Ikiru is a very political film uh, in the sense that it shows how uh, Japanese bureaucracy results in nothing ever getting done. I, I mean, it's not a primary theme of the movie, but uh, it's, it's the setting that, this, that the main character has to try to overcome. And that's something that you see in Japan even now, 70 years later. Stuart, sorry, um, you said something a little bit earlier and maybe um, just elaborate because I'm just kind of curious uh, about like the, if you know about what the kind of Yakuza 
came to represent or were like immediately like during the post-war era? Because you said something about like a possible critique of certain feudalistic aspects, either of them as an organization or about Japan in general in this film. So I was just kind of interested more a little bit about that. So like to what degree is this film attempting to say something concrete or um, to what degree is this film a realistic representation of the Yakuza as like an organization at the time? Well, I'm not uh, an expert either of, of historical Yakuza or even Yakuza film so much, but it's interesting to me that, um, uh, first of all, you had definitely had a resurgence of uh, Yakuza based crime in this black market environment, which uh, sprang up uh, immediately after the war, possibly even before the end of the war, I would, I would assume, but which certainly thrived during the, the remainder of the 1940s and probably well into the 50s and beyond uh, to some extent. And um, what's interesting is that very soon after you had uh, studios like uh, Toei and Nikatsu uh, begin to glamorize and romanticize uh, Yakuza uh, traditions and loyalty and explore that and so on. And uh, here, way back in 1948, uh, Kurosawa was all, already saying, it's all a lie, it's all nonsense. Uh, don't believe, don't believe it. Uh, get up, get the hell out while you still can. Um, it, it, it's all fake. So it's kind of, yeah, it feels like a little bit of a, uh, a takedown of that culture and, and the kind of like what's seductive about it and what might be interesting to it for people. Yeah, I'm, um, not, I'm not sure it's interesting because I'm not really aware of other early post-war Japanese movies that I mean, they were making crime films uh, and films about you know detectives and uh, crimes and things, but they were very uh, you know movie versions of those things. They weren't attempting to be realistic films about um, the the real yakuza crime scene as it existed at the time. So, um, Drunken Angel may be very unusual in that way. I, I can't tell you for sure one way or the other, uh, but it does seem uh, very unusual for the, for that time to be talking about uh, uh, to, to be addressing that issue so frankly. Yeah, I, I was I'm, I recall reading I think in your book that they, it was it sort of was intended as a bit of an expose, but then it changed into something mm. else, partially based on the strength of Mufune and his um, his performance in the film and how. He evolved. Um, one of the things that we were, re- we were, I read a little bit about in the research for this is the kind of historical f- um, way that characters were, um, characters in Japanese theater kind of influenced maybe the way uh, they they were portrayed in films. And the New York Times um, review of this, of, of or not the New York Times obituary, I'm sorry, of Mufune gave reference to um, him as a Tateyaku, a heroic leading man mm-hmm. emerging from medieval samurai tales and epic military romances. And I was wondering kind of to come back to the, you mentioned earlier that Mifune, no one had ever seen his kind of performance before, but do you think it his work drew from like Japanese history in terms of acting and performance in any specific way? Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, um, I think there's a tendency in the West to, keep trying to find connections and say, you know, uh, Mifune was from a samurai tradition and Akira mm-hmm. Kurosawa came from samurai family and all that. And uh, most of that is either inaccurate or, or greatly overstated. I think that um, Mifune, I think part of his quality was just that he was so raw and rough around the edges and uh, working class um, I think that, uh, if you look at the big stars contemporary to Mifune in the forties and fifties, um, you know, they were people like Kazuo Hasegawa, who was a big star at Daie, uh, and who did do those kind of samurai roles and costume pictures and so forth. Um, 
but they it was a completely different style of acting and mm-hmm. that kind of acting uh was influenced by um kabuki and other uh japanese uh stage uh work and so on but mifune had no experience as an actor uh prior to joining toho studios in 1946 uh he had no acting experience at all and he only went through the um kind of new face training program at the studio to learn a little bit about acting uh, but when he and Kurosawa first started working together, he had almost no experience at all. It was all really instinctive. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, it's now, I will say that I will say that when Mifune did play uh, historical characters in samurai films, he was a, a stickler for making sure everything is historically accurate. So, for instance, when he uh, did the miniseries uh, Shogun, uh, he insisted that a lot of the dialogue be changed because a lot of the, the words he was saying were, it was like regular contemporary Japanese that one ordinary person would say to another rather than something that was A, true to the period, and B, true to the, the, the way uh, someone in his high position would speak to someone in a lower position and vice versa. So he was very insistent on that kind of thing and, and very insistent on, on the clothes and props and everything be really, really accurate. And he was, he was kind of known to um, berate his, his, his uh, uh, fellow Japanese actors if they weren't up to the level that he, he expected everyone to be. Wow. That's intense that he, yeah. would, that, that, that he would berate the other actors. That's kind of amazing. Do you, do you feel like, I mean, we, we, a little bit in, in the documentary, the, about Mifune that that's on the Criterion channel, there's a little bit of this, but can you talk a little bit about the impact you think he's had on acting in the post his career or acting in the, in the 20th and 21st centuries? Well, I think he's been a, a, a huge influence. Uh, exactly how is hard to say. I mean, Probably the the obvious example uh, is, you know, would Clint Eastwood have had this huge, mm. uh, you know, 60, 70 year acting career uh, without Mifune uh, coming before him, you know, or would he just be the guy from Rawhide who <laughs> then disappeared uh, after that? Uh, obviously, um Eastwood's character in the Sergio Leone movies, is mm. obviously, particularly in Fistful of Dollars, is is taken directly from uh, Mifune mm-hmm. in Kimbo, and um, and by extension, you know, all those uh, anti-heroes of spaghetti westerns that followed, you know, hundreds and hundreds of movies, uh, and then. Uh, I suppose you could draw connections to um, some of the movies and, and characters later on played uh, in films not only by Clint Eastwood, but actors like Gene Hackman and Al Pacino and and so forth in the 70s. Um, you know, those characters kind of could all in a way be traced back to um, the kind of characters and performances mm-hmm. that Mifune gave. Yeah, I, I one another one that I think of a lot is, um, and mostly because he's he's talked about his admiration for a filmmaker is is Spike Lee and mm. Denzel Washington. The kind of mm. like there's an effortlessness to what Denzel Washington does on screen, and a cool and a kind of like, of course he's an incredibly trained actor, but there's a kind of um, openness and coolness to him that I feel like you feels like Mifune had to have had some influence on mm. and and certainly the filmmaking style of someone like Spike Lee you can see it in those films I think mm. what's the contemporary feeling or legacy of of Mifune and Kurosawa in Japan are the films held in a high regard uh Kurosawa's movies definitely are held in high regard and uh as far as Mifune goes the movies that he did with Kurosawa are held in high regard I think that he is not as highly regarded in Japan as uh, some other actors. I think that the general feeling in Japan is, oh yeah, Mifune was fantastic in all of his Kurosawa movies, 
but he, he wasn't that great of an actor mm. outside of that. Huh. And um, he was certainly popular throughout the 50s and 60s. And then in the 70s, he did a lot of television. Uh, he did several Yojimbo-based uh, TV shows. And, um, you know, he was very famous and very popular. Um, but I don't think he was appreciated as a great actor as much as we do in the West. Do you have a favorite non-Kurosawa Mifune pro- film or project? Mm, that's a difficult one. Um, <laughs> well, there's a, one film he did. I, I'm getting the, the, the international titles kind of tend to jumble together in my brain. Um, I want to say maybe the inter- the English title is The Gambling Samurai, but the important thing is uh, in the, the movie is basically a Japanese version of uh, Cyrano de Bergerac. Uh, the difference being that in Japan, uh, instead of a, a gigantic nose, uh, Mifune's character has a flat, wide nose, which is considered very unattractive. Uh, but it's kind of this interesting samurai film, and uh, Mifune plays a, a Cyrano-type character, and it's very interesting just to see that. Also, I... I hope that eventually uh, Mifune did a film in Mexico in 1961, the same year he did Yojimbo uh, called an important man. And he plays a Mexican peasant in the movie and he's actually really, really good. He's very convincing. And the movie itself is, is quite good. And um, it's, it's very hard to see. I don't, I don't know if it's ever been released um, on. Is it a Japanese film? No, it's a, it's a, well, it's a Mexi- primarily a Mexican film with a Mexican uh, director and screenwriter. Um, I think it was made as a semi-co-production uh, with Mifune's company at the time. Um, and I know that, I, I want to say that Toho released it theatrically in Japan in wow. 1961. So what, what language is it in? It's in Spanish. Entirely in Does Spanish. He sp- speak spanish in the film um i think that mostly he's dubbed okay some of the dialogue he might be where where there's not a whole lot of dialogue he might be speaking phonetically uh with his own voice that sounds so compelling i watched a clip recently of him speaking english i forget what the film was and it was so uh, kind of disjointing because i'm so i've never heard him speak english before Mm -hmm. until i i forget i forget which film it was but it was his, 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 you know, as someone that doesn't speak Japanese, his, the way he speaks and the sound of his voice is so specific. And, mm. and it's, once you hear it and it, it blows your mind, it never leaves your brain. So to hear him speak in English was kind of like, whoa, you know, it, it kind of was a weird cognitive event, like in my brain. Well, it's interesting. I mean, Charlton Heston, uh, who was on very friendly terms with Mifune for many years, uh, wrote in his uh, actor's journal book uh, one time after meeting with Mifune. He said, my God, if this man could speak English, he'd conquer the world. And I think that's very true. And the, the, the sad thing is he never really learned to speak English. And so mm-hmm. in, in movies where he, uh, international films like Grand Prix or Red Sun or uh, pictures like that, where he was required to speak English, Either it's his real voice, but it's obviously very uh, stilted because he doesn't really completely understand what he's saying. I mean, he, he's obviously looking at a translation and uh, doing mm. it phonetically, but his acting really suffers or he's dubbed by another actor. Uh, when he did his, wow. when he did his first uh, Hollywood film, Grand Prix, with for director John Frankenheimer, um, I don't remember exactly. My, my memory is a little bit hazy, but I want to say that the movie premiered with Mifune's real voice. And then Frankenheimer realized this isn't working. I have to dub his voice. And they brought in voice actor Paul Fries to loop his voice. Um, and so it was a real kind of sad thing because here you have Mifune and James Garner together and all this stuff. And Mifune, and Mifune looks fabulous because he's playing this auto company executive in this three-piece suit and he looks great and you know all these great scenes but because Mifune couldn't speak English well enough 
uh, that part of his career suffered. Yeah. It's like, it's almost like he, it wasn't at the right time for someone to become such a big international star. No. The, the, the system hadn't quite caught up with it, so to speak. Um, George, do you have any other things, any questions, any things you want to throw out bef- before we let Stuart go? No, I just want to reiterate that this film is amazing. It absolutely slaps. I can't believe it took me almost 40 years of my life on the planet to see it. Um, but I'm glad I finally saw it. I'm glad I got it to discuss with uh, both of you. It's hard for me because we were talking about when we were recording our, our episode, our, our intro to this series. Did did Kurosawa and Mifune make a bad film? I can't think of a single film that I would not. I would I would recommend all these films to everybody. Do you feel like there's something better or weaker than, or uh, do you feel like they're they're all kind of as great as I think they are, Stuart? Or am I sort of <laughs> well, crazy? You know, uh, I, there's a really terrific uh, interview with Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, where he's asked, uh, what is, what is the, your favorite Kurosawa movie? And Coppola's reply is, well, I mean, you know, it's hard because you have the, all these masterpieces and then you have the ones that are merely very, very excellent. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's that's kind of how I feel. I mean, there are, there are a few Kurosawa movies I don't much care for. I'm not a big fan of um, uh, Dreams, Mm-hmm. And uh, I think Kagemusha, as originally conceived, could have been a great film. It was originally conceived for Shintaro Katsu, who then got, got into a fight with Kurosawa and, and was fired. And um, I don't think the picture works as well with Tatsuya Nakadai in the lead. And there are a few things like that. But even, even, even his weakest films, there are just you know these really outstanding moments in them, these little bits and pieces and stuff. Uh, so they're they're definitely all worthwhile, and I mean he made Kurosawa made thirty movies I think, and I mean there's sort of inarguably you know fifteen masterpieces in the bunch. So I mean if you make one great movie, that's an accomplishment. But yeah, <laughs> so yeah, amazing. Well, this has been really really wonderful. It's you know we're we're kicking off the series with Drunken Angel and. There's so much to understand and and get a sense of with these 16 films. So it's been really great to speak to literally the guy that wrote the book. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. <laughs> about these, um, yeah, that's 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 it from us. Um, we're next up on the show. We're going to talk about Quiet Duel, which is a film I've never seen. George, have you seen? I've Quiet not Duel? seen Quiet Duel. I'm quite the philistine when it comes to the Kurosawa oeuvre. I've seen a number of them, but yeah, there's so really many are. of them. I'm like so it's way embarrassing behind. how few. <laughs> Believe it or not, it's embarrassing. Yeah, I'm really excited to watch it. Stuart, are you do you like you wrote it? You wrote a piece, or you produced? You worked on Quiet Duel or the DVD release? Yeah, I think so. A long time ago, I kind of barely remember that that now. So, yeah, I wrote an essay or something. Okay, for, for the, <laughs> cool. The UK DVD. I, that's all I remember. Maybe we can track it down. And Stuart, what are you working on now? If you don't mind me asking, I work on your book. Well, I've I've been uh, doing a couple of audio commentaries recently. Uh, I'm just working on one right now, which unfortunately I can't talk about because they haven't announced it yet. Mm. Um, and then I'm doing this, uh, hopefully going to be doing this documentary series about foreigners living in the Japanese countryside and restoring old houses and, and that kind of thing. So we shot the the pilot and it's uh uh being shopped around right now and we'll, we'll see what happens awesome good luck Stuart. let us watch uh a little uh watch the pilot i thought it was really enjoyable and and i found it like it's such a specific and fascinating topic and i i, I was just very 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 into it and i really much enjoyed it and you were a great travel show host <laughs> oh yeah well i didn't even <laughs> want to be in I, I i was fine being the narrator but i kind of wanted to be this a shadowy presence, sort of like the reporter in Citizen Kane, where you'd only see him in silhouette or something. And I kind of ended up getting pulled deeper and deeper. And dragged you right into it. No, it's good. It's. I mean, you were a film detective. You found films, which I, that needs to be a documentary. You need to make a documentary about that's, finding that's, films. That's an interesting story. That's There's all kinds of weird things where things turn up. and Yeah. yeah. Well, we we really enjoyed having you on. Um, 
this this uh will will um we'll let you know when this one comes out so you can promote it and let people know that it's okay, coming. Yeah. If you're listening to this show right now, please rate, review and subscribe, send it to your friends if they love Kurosawa and um it's been great. I'm Liam Billingham. I'm George Fragopoulos. And I'm Stuart Galbraith. And this was I guess I should Ooh, say it. Oh, I'll say it. I you just stepped over my Oh, you messed it up, George. Uh.